Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest. But first, a quick chat about capital raising. Today's show is brought to you by the secrets of successful syndication. If you've exhausted your own funds to invest in real estate, you've brought your own real estate career to a halt. Developing the skill to raise capital legally, reliably, and professionally might be just what you need to unlock the ceiling on your investment portfolio. This two-day workshop maps out how to transform your business into one where you enlist the help and capital of others to scale your business. It's hosted by my good friends Robert Helms and Russell Gray of the Real Estate Guys radio show, March 27th and 28th in Dallas, Texas. It'll be a chance for us to meet in person. For more information, go to victorjm.com slash events. That's victorjm.com slash events. We are back here on the weekend edition. We interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Long Beach, California. Welcome to the show, Scott Chopin. Hi, Victor. Great to be here. Appreciate the invite. Great to have you here. So, Scott, you are a specialist in the arena of workforce housing, a lot of involving new construction, new development. And this is a topic that is central to so much of the dialogue around housing these days. How did you get in this particular segment? So we, we came to workforce housing really through the, the uh, evolution of my career in the real estate development business. I basically have a family background in real estate development, particularly my family's been in the business in Southern California in development since 1960. I came into the industry in the mid-90s and particularly worked for a couple companies that informed the workforce housing space. And I'll, I'll tell you what that means in a, here shortly. But I worked for a division of a home building company at the time called Kaufman & Broad. A multi-housing group was the name of that. And they were a pure play affordable housing developer and syndicator of tax credit projects. I then moved to a company called Cirrus Regis Group based in Orange County and really pure play market rate apartment developer. And through our own projects that we've developed since 2000, in the last three years, we've seen the capability to execute on projects in this middle space, a niche where we're pairing private capital with a naturally occurring moderate income workforce housing model. And we basically recognize this because we lived in these two domains on either end of the spectrum, meaning pure or true affordable housing and market rate housing. So let's define for the listeners exactly what we mean by affordable. I know that HUD, for example, in Washington has a definition for affordable. Is, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, great question. In fact, appreciate you asking that because it's some. this is a topic we always are defining for people. So the way I consider it, so what I call true affordable housing or affordable housing, the way you're saying it is really projects or apartments that will be rented to families or individuals at or below 60% of median income. And that's pretty much an industry standard across most subsidy programs being at HUD, um, the low-income housing tax credit program. And then for us, workforce housing, just to further define it, is a middle income or moderate income product. And we're serving families that live at 80 to 120% of median income. And then anything above 120, maybe to 150, you could argue that's still moderate. Um, and then certainly 150% of median income and above is very much in the market rate renter domain. When you're talking about new development, you're talking about building bricks and mortar or a sheet of drywall is 10 bucks. I don't, I don't care where you put it in the country and I don't care how much rent you get for it. It still costs the same to buy that sheet of drywall. So if you're building new product, 
why does it make sense to go into affordable housing or workforce housing? Sure. Appreciate that. So our, our model, we call urban townhouse uh, or UTH for short. And we came to the design and execution financing and the rental of these projects over the last three years. And UTH works as a model really because we have multiple variables that we're able to either adjust, change, put systems in place to make it feasible. But there's a couple highlight points that I'll, that I'll mention that are really the main drivers of this. Our UTH model really is a very specific type of rental housing. And what we're doing is we're building a five-bedroom, four-bath, three-story townhouse unit. And these are stick-built type five, you know, wood frame, pretty standard stuff, except it's three stories. And then it sits on an on-grade slab. And when we rent these units at five bedroom, four bath, we're renting on average between today about 3,500 to 4,000 a month, which sounds high. You know, it might be a, a large whole dollar number in many markets, but in California and Southern California metro area on a per square foot basis, because we're renting units that are 1,750 square feet, we're about $1.80 to 220 a square foot, which is well below the market. Now, no renter rents on per square foot, so they're focused on the whole dollar rents. And so we're providing a value proposition to the tenants, charging this $3,500 to $4,000 a month, which you can do the math when you divide that by five bedrooms. It works because we're charging a very high whole dollar rent for space that doesn't cost so much to build. So your major costs as you've you know talked about on your show is, you know, kitchens and bathrooms. And I think that's well known. But our units have only one kitchen, have four bathrooms, but we have a lot of space, garage and bedroom space that really is much more cost effective to build. So on an average across each unit and per square foot of our cost, we're able to keep it very efficient on cost. We're charging these whole dollar rents that are 3500 to 4000 And then additionally, just some added factors, we're, we're buying in middle and lower income neighborhoods. So we're getting better land purchase price. Um, we're also buying sites that are already zoned. So we compact the schedule delivery of a project ready to build. And then we have a great construction subcontractor base that we work with that helps us build very efficiently. And so when you combine all these variables together, now it starts to make sense where we can deliver market yields, market superior yields in some cases to investors while we're also delivering this naturally occurring moderate income housing. I love that. So from someone who does this math day in, day out, uh, when you say to me $1.70, $1.80 square foot in rent, knowing that your stick build cost is going to be somewhere between 110 and 120 a square foot in terms of hard cost. And you're probably not paying a lot in municipal impact fees and so on. Uh, I think you can have a very viable business at that price point. I think that's a, a very astute strategy that you put together. I appreciate that. And that you're actually not, your numbers that you, you reference are, are fairly close, you know, a little tweak here and there. Um, and by the way, we do pay full development impact fees. Um, So that is part of the model, but yet we're still able to make this work because of obviously this combination of variables that come together in this particular UTH space. I love that. And you know, one of the nice things about the townhouse model 
A lot of people, when they grew up, they grew up either in a single family home, something with a yard. It didn't have to be a very large garden, but at least have access to the outdoors. They don't want to go into a complex. They don't want necessarily to go into a high rise building. So you tend to get a lot lower turnover in the townhouse model than you would get in other multifamily type rental models. Uh, Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, it has been. In fact, we the way we describe it, Victor, is that we're building rental housing that lives like a house, right? Uh, I always say to my team, and in fact, our main comparable and competition really is single family houses for rent. And I always say to our leasing teams, when you're having conversations with these potential renters, they would always choose to live in a house like you described, like many of us grew up in, you know, backyard, front yard, white picket fence, if you will. But obviously, families are, are making decisions on housing predominantly based on incomes and capability to pay rents comfortably. And so our model, UTH, really is, is bridging the gap between incomes that are available in the state of California for working families and the housing market, particularly in the rental domain. And also these families, which is our main tenant profile, larger families, propensity to want to live in a space that suits their lifestyle, right? And so, you know, things like uh, we all of our units have a two-car ground floor direct access garage, right? Private garage for your unit. All these have a ground floor bedroom bathroom, which makes them multi-generational. And one of the things that I appreciate about the townhouse model is that you're not living above and below another family like you would in a stack flat environment. The joke I make is if my kids are jumping on the bed on the third floor, it's my kid. I'll, I'll deal with it as a parent or a sibling versus you know some family that you may or may not know that lives above you. And so it, it definitely lives like a house. And that's, that's why we say it that way. So for us, not only making the, the projects feasible because you know we have to sustain and, and, and grow a business ourselves, but we also have this model, this UTH model that's very coherent with the lifestyles of these families, both in income and rents that they would pay and also lifestyle. To me, having the two-car garage, I mean, I even, I even sort of joke, when I rented apartments when I was young, I never had a garage. And I, it's no complaint or that these people are advantaged, but I just go, how great is it that this model can deliver something that is so like fundamentally a benefit if somebody works a night shift, let's say mom's a nurse and she gets home late from her, her night shift, um, she can drive into the garage, close that door behind her, and in essence, you know, she's inside her house, right? Or anybody who would, who would live in the unit. Just practical things like loading and unloading groceries, right? When you live in a regular apartment complex, you know, you're going to be out in the far out parking lot, potentially. Every apartment's different, but nothing like having your parking, your garage right there in your unit that your private domain. I love that. I love that. Now, at this price point, are you are your tenants taking advantage of any subsidies or are they simply funding the rent straight out of their own income out of pocket? Yeah, great question. So generally it's the second one. In fact, we design it purposely to serve those families that make above 60, really 80 to 120 and to have it fit coherently with the magic number of 30% of income towards rents one of the already existing parts of these family groups that you know we didn't create, we just happened to recognize and, and build a housing type around is that these family groups generally will be six to 10 people. 
more importantly, two to four people in that family group will be wage earners. And this is really, to me, the, the, the really special part of, of the workforce housing model and UTH particularly, is that if you look at any one of those individual earners, let's say they make between 30 and 50,000, that by themselves, they wouldn't afford even a studio in, in most cases by themselves. You know, incomes don't produce enough to afford rent at a comfortable level at 30%. And so across California, and this is true in many major urban metros, people are paying ever greater amounts of their income towards rent. And so when you have this sharing of income and expenses across the family group and two to four wage earners, all of a sudden, you know, you have four people making 30,000 or, you know, four people making 50,000, that the numbers start to really add up very quickly and and then all of a sudden now you can be comfortably affording 3500 i i have people react and say 3500 is either really high if they're out from out of california or if they're in california they go wow to get your own unit and that's that big um that's a great rent right so it's relative to people's experience but we're really focused on the family's capability to comfortably pay rents and if you're pulling down you know 120 to 150000 a year then that becomes easily achievable to, to be at 30% or even lower of, of your income, depending. Uh, but also we see that if any particular person has a job change or loses their job, that there's the capability to adjust across the family group to, to continue to sustain the family, right? This is multi-generational living is classically the, the living lifestyle across the globe and not so classically the, the living lifestyle in the US, but becoming more predominant. And in fact, that's one of the you know advantages we think in this housing type uh, in a recessionary environment is that we have this family group that's able to r- remain relatively stable even in job change and recessionary environments. I love that. Now, for many of the development projects that we undertake, one of the key metrics we look at is not just, of course, the rent per square foot, but also what does it cost for the developable land? Mm. You know, in some areas, we're spending 10 or 15% of our all-in build cost on the land. In other cases, it's much higher in higher value markets. What's your target in order to make the numbers work as a percentage of your total build cost? So we we don't focus on the metric the way you describe, although I I, I accept it. Um, the the way we and and it's the same math we just describe it differently. So I'll just first say you know we're we're right here in thinking we're really focused on a per unit land cost, and so when we started the program. About three years ago, we basically were focused on $100,000 a door, right? So for each unit of land, we would pay $100,000. And then as construction costs in, in all metro markets are rising, we started to modify that to some degree. So right now, we like to buy land between, let's say, fifty dollars and $80,000 a door. Now, anybody who's listening to me speak this in California will go, no way in, can you do 50000 a door. It doesn't exist. I've had people tell me this. And it does. Um, and we're finding that. In fact, we're executing on multiple projects that are within that range. And so really today, it's, as you speak to me, it's fifty to 80000 a door. Uh, obviously, dependent on you know location, on the rents that can be achieved in the market, the entitlement status. Although we generally always buy you know zone sites or sites that need very low levels of entitlement work, no heavy lift. Uh, particularly in California, that's a you know it's a, just a difficult prospect generally time wise and cost wise risk. 
so, you know, we're, we're really focused on, on that, you know, range of the market and we're, we're achieving that. So, you know, we're, we're working on a site right now that we bought land at 46,000 a door. And I think our highest price right now is probably a hundred K. Um, but that's a much bigger project. So we're able to be a little bit more efficient in our project and build costs that makes the hundred K make sense. And so, you know, really it's like any residual land analysis, you know, we're looking to, you know, back in to our land price as a function of the, you know, yields that we can produce so we can be, you know, competitive in the market to investors, just, you know, the same as you guys do. Um, so that's, that's how we orient around land price. And, and those land prices are before your development charges from the city. Uh, yeah. You mean development impact fees? Yes. yes. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So again, we like a typical residual land value, residual land analysis, you know, we'll put in all of our known cost fees, build costs, soft costs, you know, interest carry, and then see how that adjusts our land. Now we don't literally leave it all to the last, like we adjust all those components together because we have to compete in the market for land, right? Um, As you guys do, right? As any developer does. And so we have to sort of balance between, you know, what does the market want or a particular seller of a piece of land? What are they trying to achieve? We then underwrite it based on what are known variables on all the other costs besides land. And we say, hey, this project, this land site works or doesn't. Um, I will also say, just to qualify it, the location that UTH Projects wants to go in really in these, you know, middle and lower middle income neighborhoods really helps us pretty dramatically to buy land efficiently because we're really not competing with any mainstream builders and or, you know, other developers of apartment product. As we can tell, nobody's doing five bedroom units of rental at scale. Uh, we seem to be the only company to be doing that. And we're, we're, you know, we're glad for that, of course. It's part of our exploiting opportunities and niches, right? And specialized undersupplied markets. So that helps this land per unit story dramatically in some cases, because in, in some cases, land assets that we're after have zero competition. I don't say that will last forever. And we don't plan for that to be the only competitive advantage that we have. But right now, given where we are in the market cycle and the type of neighborhoods that we're in, this is, amongst others, one of our competitive advantages. To what an extent have qualified opportunity zones factored in any of your planning? So great question. So interestingly enough, um, so when we first started the program about three years ago, we, we purposely took on a number of small projects in a demonstration phase in order to really prove the model because arguably no one's doing five bedroom rental housing. It's just so unusual and for us too, given our history of types of projects we've developed, we wanted to test the model. And we were really looking for three things, Victor. We were looking first that we could rent the units for what we projected. Two, that we could achieve the build costs that we projected. And three, and really most importantly for any developers, what's the exit value or what's the perm loan value that you can achieve at the end of the project, whether you're going to sell it or hold it. And we've actually, so out of the four projects that were in this demonstration phase, we've completed and sold the first three. In fact, the last sale we had in downtown Long Beach, we achieved the high watermark for per unit sales price in the entire Long Beach marketplace. That was $500,000 a door. In almost every case, is, you know, we've exceeded the, the rent levels that we projected. Now, I assess part of that just be that we're being conservative in our underwriting. I'm not, not trying to oversell the potential rent levels to ourselves or our lenders and investors. Out of the first four projects, 
all four of them were in opportunity zones, but we didn't end up actually, it was too early to actually raise any capital in the opportunity zone space. But I make that point because it really reflects that in these middle and lower middle income neighborhoods, those are directly relatable and coherent with the opportunity zone marketplace. But, you know, then there's qualified census tracts. And so the, that's the long-term answer. The near-term answer, or more recently, we're actually starting to pick up a fair amount of momentum where we are really focused on raising capital in the opportunity zone space. Now, not every UTH project is an opportunity zone qualified site, but probably at least half of the sites that we track are. And we're starting to see a, a little bit of maturation in the OZ capital space where we went from really the Wild West pre-promulgated regs that are now being issued. I think we're on our third draft of the regulations, really starting to refine the program to adjust to make it feasible for projects to be developed appropriately if you're in the real estate OZ space. And so we think on the long run basis, I actually think there's a lot of opportunity there. But notably, what we've seen is the market has not matured enough where there is sufficient supply of viable real estate projects for the amount of capital that's in the space, right? And so you have this this constraint. When the program first came out, my speculation was we'd have either a capital constraint, like there wouldn't be enough capital coming into the program. That's turned out to be not true. There's plenty of capital. And then the second one is when capital came, if it, if it arrived, then you'd have this constraint in projects, right? I mean, finding a well-underwritten, viable, feasible project is actually relatively difficult. Now, I think people are having success in the space. I don't say nobody's having success. I just know as we observe in tracking on our particular domain of urban infill apartment development in California, I see lots of churn, lots of brokers saying, oh, you know, this project, that project. But when you really underwrite it, and particularly when you're looking at podium projects, parking structures below, units above, or high rise, it's just too costly to build those, even with the opportunity zone benefit. You could argue some opportunity investors require a lower return, right? Lower IRR, lower ROI, but it's never enough for most projects to then move out of infeasibility to all of a sudden magically the deal works, right? And so as we first started underwriting projects, you know, our team was sort of chasing a little bit. Oh, let's go find this site. You know, we're sort of reacting to land availability. At one point I said, look, let's stop. We're, we're focused on UTH. That's our model. And then let's basically come from the other side, which has said, we are going to produce some feasible projects from the get-go. I mean, that's just good development generally, right? And if it happens to intersect with appropriately priced available opportunity zone capital, fantastic. But we're not going to depend on that to save the deal. You know, I underwrote a podium deal as an example. I underwrote it. I think we, we achieved in the pro forma a 16% IRR, which is not great for a development project, but it actually exceeded at that time. I was talking to a particular capital source that said they would take an 8% IRR. And I was like, wow, that's great. But then when I started to look at the 16 that we were achieving in this podium underwriting, I said, there's so much opportunity for that deal to go sideways, costs go up, rents go down a little bit. And your 16%, your margin could be erased very, very rapidly, much more than if you were underwriting at a 25% IRR as an example. And so we, I just made the call. I go, look, I, I won't do a 16 IRR deal. It's too thin. It's great that we have this availability of an 8% capital source. 
but we need ourselves to be disciplined in how we underwrite. Well, I love that. And the modeling we've done, for example, on opportunities on funding is the difference over a 10-year period between something that is using opportunities on funds versus not is only about two percentage points in IRR on an annualized basis. So if you were going to be at 16, now you're at 18. If you were at 18, now you're at 20. That's not enough to erase any of the other risks that you just talked about that have a much bigger impact on the actual realized rate of return to the investors over the life of the project. So it's a nice little bonus. It's a nice little boost, but it's not fundamentally changing the landscape or the viability of the project. That's That's been our analysis. I, I tell my guys who do underwrite, I said, look at OZE as gravy. I mean, you know, technical term gravy, right? But if it's a well underwritten project and makes sense and it's executable, all the good development, disciplined underwriting assessments that we make, then you put OZE on top of it. Great. I, I hadn't done the analysis that you did of the two percentage points over 10 years, but that's, you know, that's really zero, right? If you think about it. It's really so such a small difference that it's really no difference in any meaningful way. And I don't disparage the program. I think the origination of the program and the, in its formation, all the ideas were right. Part of my background is coming from the low-income housing tax credit world, you know, Section 42 tax credits. And I see a lot of similarities to OZ, although many advantages to the OZ space because it's not really government run, it's government sanctioned, but it's not going through a, a control gate of the low-income housing tax credit programs. All the tax credits are allocated by the local tax credit authority for each state or for the state level rather. OZ is purely private capital. It's purely up to the market capitalism at, at its best. Now, of course, people say, oh, well, maybe there'll be abuses and people will take advantage. That's possible. I do think the IRS and the Treasury Department is going to be very, very closely monitoring it because they do that already in other programs like the LIHTC program. For all intents and purposes, there's no limit. Tax credits for affordable housing, Section 42, are based on per capita. That will ever be the limit. And in fact, my description of true affordable housing is it's highly undersupplied, never oversupplied. There's always many more families and individuals who need that housing. So that makes the limit of capability to produce those units a function of subsidy and tax credit availability. And basically, when I draw that line over time, it's just pretty much a flat, even line, meaning the limit is subsidy and tax credits, and there will never be enough of that, right? And to me, right, that's right. You know, the disadvantage. Now, anybody who's in that business will go, of course, that's true. But I'm looking at it from the standpoint of true affordable housing, workforce housing, middle income like we do, and then market rate. And in this instance, it's it's finite, limited availability of capital and true affordable housing. On the other end of the spectrum, market rate has unlimited capital, but of course has exposure to the market if rents go down or values go down. And then, you know, as I described before, ours is sitting in the middle of those two where we sort of have some of the affordability and we have some of the private capital availability, I think OZ does the same thing. So I do think it's a good pairing for our model. I love it. Well, if folks want to get in touch, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Go to our website. It's www.urbanpacific.com. And we have a contact page in there and you can just fill in the information and send it out. Also on that contact page is my email address and my direct number. So people are welcome to email me and or call or text me uh, on the direct line, although the text is going to get you better response. <laughs> the email really is the best. I love it. 
Well, thank you, Scott. Thanks for sharing your perspective. Uh, you're definitely a kindred spirit when it comes to development. And so for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Scott at urbanpacific.com. And in the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.